All right, so I don't normally do this, but I'm starting with a joke today. Why, um, why is it important that you always take two Baptists with you fishing? Because if you take only one, he'll drink all your beer. Is that, ouch, huh? Okay, so um, doing research on today's passage brought that joke to my attention. So um, I had to share it with you. Um, this, this passage that we're looking at today, when you discuss the role of alcohol in, um, in the church and life of the Christian in Scripture, you're going to talk about this passage. And so I thought we would lay the groundworks first for the, um, the correct tools for engaging with this passage. And as we're getting into John chapter 2, this is one of those really problematic passages for people from the traditional Baptist mindset. Um, and I'm going to explain a little bit about, about what that means. Traditional um, traditionalism is the belief that tradition um, is equal to Scripture in its ability to reveal truth. Um, certainly, tradition can reveal truth. There's lots of different ways that, um, lots of different things that can reveal truth. But traditionalism teaches um, the idea that, that tradition is equal to Scripture for that. Um, for example, that's part of the Roman Catholic tradition or Roman Catholic teaching, is that tradition is equivalent to Scripture for revealing truth. Um, if you grew up in a traditional, and if you were raised in the Baptist church anywhere from about 1890 until about 1990, to one degree or another, you were raised with a, a traditional mindset from the Baptist perspective. Um, hopefully not a traditionalism one, but a traditional one. Um, there's, there's good things and bad things about that. This is during the time of we don't drink, dance, gamble, or chew, or date girls who do, right? You guys remember that, that mindset. Um, so... But the problem is, it's, there's an ancient um, and, and much more important understanding that came into light under the um, Protestant teaching, um, when the Protestant church um, separated itself from the Roman church. Um, and one of those five main statements is what is called sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means that the, the only trustworthy, the only confident source of truth is Scripture. It isn't that there aren't others. Of course, there are many other sources of truth. Um, and even the decision to trust Scripture is founded on some of the other sources like rational thinking or empirical evidence. But, but the Scripture is the only source of truth that we can trust implicitly. Um, and the problem is that this and a couple of other passages make it impossible to teach that drinking alcohol is by definition sin. Um, you cannot teach that scripturally using scripture alone. It's just not there. This passage is one of the ones that creates problems for that. Um, the fact that we're going to be celebrating the Passover um, in about 10 days, um, which there are four cups of wine minimally that are drunk at the Passover, and Jesus had celebrated at least one Passover, and there's no reason to think he didn't celebrate 33 of them um, in his lifetime. This is, this is, that's hugely problematic. It is, it is impossible to defend the idea, solely scriptura, that in a general sense to drink an alcoholic beverage is sin. It's impossible. Um, which is why it is rarely taught that way. Even in traditional Baptist churches, it is generally taught either with a reference true to Baptist tradition or perhaps to authority and, of course, to the idea of conscience. Yours or someone else's. 
These are all appropriate. They're appropriate parts of the conversation to have as you and your family decide how you engage with alcohol in your lives. Um, it's, a, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue in Tyler. I'll tell you as a therapist, it is a huge issue in Tyler. Many of the families that we know and love and many of us, there are members of our families who are um, raging alcoholics. Um, meaning that alcohol and its intoxicating effects take a primary place in their life, sometimes more important than their family, more important than their relationship with God. Um, of course, that is sin. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move uh, here in just a second. But it's often taught in addition of, and in from the idea of, of, of course, if something causes somebody else to stumble or causes you engaging in something, creates a problem for somebody else, then of course that can be sin, no matter what it is. Of course, anything that can be understood as being addictive or something that is intoxicating, which we're going to get to some of these passages in a minute, anything that makes you drunk, being drunk, is clearly taught scripturally as sin. These, these, are, these are also, in my opinion, irrefutable, that they're there. The abuse of alcohol is easy. Any idiot can abuse alcohol. It's harder to abuse some other things, although many things, almost anything, can be abused. Um, Satan abuses Scripture and his temptations of Jesus Christ. If you can abuse Scripture, pretty much everything is on the table. But clearly being um, dependent on, if, if alcohol is the way you avoid the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if alcohol is the way you numb engaging with the character flaws or the broken relationships that you should be working on, I'm convinced, for you, it's sin. That's, that's that is not the same thing as saying in a general sense that by definition, if you drink something with alcohol in it, you're sinning. Not from Scripture. You can't get there. But today's passage is an important one. Jesus is going to turn water into wine, and not just any wine, good wine. And lots of it. Um, a whole lot of wine that Jesus is going to create in this. That does not create license for us. The freedom that God gives us never should be interpreted as license. Because I am free, therefore I am free to sin. Wrong. That's not how this works. Freedom is, not a, freedom is not equal to license to do something wrong. Freedom is not an opportunity to be immoral. It's an opportunity to be moral. It's an opportunity to live exceptional lives, not common, ordinary, messed up, broken, desperate lives. And we have a different option than that. But even traditionally, so probably no one knows unless you're here in the first service who Elijah Craig was. Um, uh, many of you have experienced the, the product of his invention. He was a Baptist. He invented bourbon. Um, he was the first guy to put that together. He was Baptist. In fact, before the Civil War, this connection between Baptists and, and alcohol drinking being sin was, is just not there. Um, in fact, before the Civil War, often people um, uh, had their own still at home, right? Uh, to make alcohol at home. Well, when they tithed, they were tithing with what they produced, including alcohol. Even in Baptist churches, it was common for people to tithe alcohol to the church. The, the homemade whiskey they were making at home to the church. And until the Civil War, it wasn't super uncommon for Baptist pastors to be paid partially in whiskey. Like that was part of We've come a long way, haven't we? I mean, that's not what you expected to hear today. I, I um, have it on good, um, on, on, on good faith and and I've not been able to find this, but I was told this by somebody who would know, that until the Civil War, Baptists were often referred to as two-barrel Baptists. Because that's how many barrels of beer it took to get us through our business meetings um, before the Civil War. Um, 
That's a, again, this is a, the idea even that it's Baptist tradition is still only narrow to about 100 years. Now, why? Um, we talk about this, if you've watched the, um, the, the videos that we have online about becoming a member here, one of them talks about this, that people have this automatic, like, oh, Baptists, that there's, here's what we know about Baptists. They think if you drink or do any of that kind of stuff, you're going to hell, which, by the way, is not, that isn't Baptist tradition. Um, it is part of Baptist tradition to teach that to drink is sin. That was just, in my opinion, error for a few, uh, about 100 years. But let me tell you where it came from. Um, where it comes from, I believe, is from the Civil War and the trauma after the Civil War. I mean, you're talking about 600,000 to 750,000 Americans dead. You realize every, almost every bullet that hit a body was hitting an American in either direction. It, it, it was a devastating war. We didn't have much population at that time, and to wipe out Two-thirds of a million people, and that doesn't include always, including some of the people who died of starvation and disease and, and all the other things that happened during the Civil War. It was an awful time for America that we really can't wrap our brains around. They, they really did not think it was going to be like this. They, they went to war thinking in terms of honor and glory and, and all of that kind of stuff and personal aggrandizement, and it turned out to be ugly and horrible and tragic. And so what you have is a few hundred thousand, a few million survivors of this war, and they've got to go home, and there is no VA, and there's no therapist, there's no psychiatrist with antidepressants and anti-anxiety, and a certain percentage of them, just like today, when bold, courageous, valiant men and women go into combat, a certain percentage come back broken. And certain percentage come back changed forever. Maybe all of them come back changed forever, and for some of them, the trauma is unspeakable. There was only one place for someone with post-traumatic stress to go who did not have the option of maybe even going to church because church was still pretty scattered in the in places in the United States, and that was whiskey. And so men, I am sure, in the hundreds of thousands turned to the bottle to survive the trauma of the Civil War and in doing so began to destroy their families. And the first sermons you see about whiskey are about the destruction of the, of the family. And I will tell you, anything that destroys the family is an enemy of the church. And a church is an enemy of anything that destroys the family. Um, and so in the future, whatever it is in our lives that is destroying our families, um, whether it's the things we know to be sin, like pride or addiction or lust, or, or if it's just things that are distracting us too much from our family or our own mindsets or the empty things that we learn from our parents or whatever, this easily can be sin in our lives, easily. Um, so I don't... I don't want to minimize, in fact, listen, listen to the passages that are taught about the intoxicating effect. Um, that's what is clearly the dependence on alcohol, the intoxicating effect of alcohol, what is called in Scripture drunkenness, is clearly labeled as sin in Scripture. Um, that's what is labeled. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Wickedness, evil, rebellion, but instead be filled with the Spirit. That's pretty clear. Instruction straight from Paul through Scripture. In Galatians, we get the list, the list of the works of the flesh. This is not a sweet list. Um, this is a very ugly little list that is being taught to Galatian believers to make sure that this is not how they are living out their lives. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we have been saved from this as Christians. Even if we fall into any of these sins or temptations, we've been saved from the consequences of them. But look at that list. Do we as a culture, are we comfortable listing drunkenness with sorcery or orgies? It is, it is listed among serious sin. And so we, it's not something that we need to, as a culture, kind of wink and nod at. Intoxication and addiction aren't that way. Many of you know this very, very firsthand. Either personally, the addiction, this is the addiction you struggle with, or secondhand with family members, brothers, sisters, parents. You've seen this. It's no wonder that we learn to hate the possible consequences of alcohol. Um, we just have to be careful that we don't teach that alcohol, by definition, to use alcohol is sin. Otherwise, we have Jesus in a position of sinning. Incidentally, if you were raised like I was in at least one of the churches that I went to, that, that the alcohol that they drank in Scripture in the first century, that what the alcohol that Jesus and them were drinking was really just grape juice. Um, that's a common teaching. Let me just tell you, it really makes all these passages about drunkenness seem a little silly, doesn't it? Um, if they were incapable of getting drunk on the grape juice that they were drinking, then why are there so many teachings against drunkenness? No, this was wine that could get someone drunk. And that's what Jesus made. Um, you're going to see a man who understands and appreciates wine is going to be impressed by the wine that Jesus makes. So again, he didn't go, wow, this stuff that has no kick at all. No, no, he's, he understands what this is. If you do drink, this was my favorite. So Matthew Henry, who's one of the commentaries I read when I'm studying, um, he's an older commentator. His commentary is one of the older ones, but I loved this. So this is a good guideline. Um, I always enjoyed the whole, um, you know, leave room for the Holy Spirit thing when you're dancing. That whole, uh, like for some reason that stuck in my head, like <laughs> leave room for Jesus. Uh, or that you, leave, you take, kept your Bible when you went on a date because by the time you crawled over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'd be too tired to do anything else. That, like... <laughs> All of those little rules, I always as a teenager was like, okay, that's awful and cheesy, but I remember it, right? So there's, there's something in there. Well, here's, let me tell you, this is what Matthew Henry says in his commentaries. If you drink, I'm not quoting him, this is a paraphrase, because he, he writes in an older version of English, but if you do drink, make sure that you are thinking of the wedding feast in Cana. Because if you're going to drink, you need to be completely comfortable if Christ are, is a guest at the event. That's a great measuring stick. Are you comfortable having Jesus pour your drink? Or pouring his? If not, there's your, your conscience is probably being touched on. So that's a great, I love the idea of at any event where you decide to drink alcohol, a great measuring stick would be, I need to do it in such a way that if Jesus were another member of this event, I'd be okay with that. That's pretty, that's pretty good way to start. Never use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Anyway, there's a lot of points in this passage, um, as you can see, that, that really aren't the main point with this, the conversation on alcohol, which it seemed appropriate to start with, lay the groundwork with. Um, we could have spent a whole time talking about marriage. Jesus is, after all, at a wedding. Um, so that's a good one. Did Jesus show up for your wedding? Was he on the invitation list? I think that's a fun type of conversation. What's his role in your marriage now? Um, his teaching, his understanding, what he has taught us through his word about marriage. Is that a key role? Is he a key role um, in the marriage? Are you making your marriage dependent on your spouse? 
Um, it's a natural thing for us to measure our marriage. Our marriage is as good as our spouse is a spouse, if we're not careful. Um, that's not, we do not answer to our spouse in eternity for the kind of marriage we had. We answer to God for it. Um, and so that's, that, that's a healthy part of the conversation as well. Um, is our marriage a testimony to our children? Would we want our children to have the same kind of marriage we do? I, I always think that's a great measuring stick. Is it to our community? How about to a lost world? Is our marriage, are our marriages a living parable? Are they living parables of Jesus' love for his people? Is that our goal and our intent with our marriages? So you'll know when we get to John 14, we're going to spend some significant time talking about marriage um, when we get there. This is the first miracle and the first sign, and so that's going to be part of the main point, as Paul referenced. Um, that's part of the main point of the book of John, is that we would be able to see and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and so... Um, that's, where, that's part of why I think this story makes it. So let's dive in. I'm going to start by reading the entire passage. Um, you don't have to have your Bibles open, although you can. It will not be on the screen. Just so you can listen and hear what's going on here, you can follow along if you want. On the third day, um, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that now had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first, sign, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, so let's start taking that apart, seeing what all it has to teach us. Um, so on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana, of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Cana is kind of between Nazareth and Capernaum. It's, it's, it's in the middle up there. When we go visit, um, when we go to Israel, we take our Israel trips. Sometimes we get to stop in Cana and sometimes we don't. It's one of those that's a good one, but it's not at the very top of the list. Um, but one of the things we like to do when we go is uh, when we do go, and, and uh, when Deborah and I went a few years ago and took a crew, we had a, a handful of couples that, that remembered their vows. Um, I'm not a big fan of renewing vows. That implies that vows need to be renewed to me, and I think that's just a huge mistake. They are, after all, vows. You don't, you don't need to redo them. Um, it's totally appropriate to remember them. And so you, I love when people remember their vows. In fact, that's part of why when I do premarital counseling, when I do a wedding, I strongly encourage couples um, to use traditional vows in their wedding. They may write their own, although... Those just scare me to death. I don't know. I mean, I just, I get, I get, I'm, every time I'm like, okay, you have to get them to me a week in advance and I will then edit them. Um, and they're like, it's our wedding. Like, have fun with that. Because I'm not doing it unless I edit the vows. And so, because I'm not, I'm not going to sit up there and while they're speaking, be going like, no, no, no. Everybody ignore everything they just said. Like, that's going to be way more embarrassing. Um, so give them to me to edit and I, I look at them and sometimes they're terrible. I mean, they're real. It's like, wow, you thought this was a vow? This isn't even a vow. I mean, this is, this is terrible. And so they, we get to have a good conversation about that. But they, it's, what I tell them is, even if you do your own vows, I also want to do traditional vows. Why? So the people in the audience 
get to remember their vows. So that when you're sitting out there in the audience and those, that couple is standing up there and they're doing their vows, you reach over and you take your husband or wife's hands because you're remembering your vows. It's good to remember them. They don't need to be renewed. Um, unless there's a repentance involved, maybe there needs to be a renewal. But in normal circumstances, um, remembering them is plenty and really a good idea. Um, so I, I recommend that. So they've, they're going to go there. That's um, the sixth day in the book of John, by the way. Um, if you don't count eternity past, it's the sixth day in the book of John. It's the second day after the calling of Philip. John is still continuing this journal format at this point. So he walked. Um, they have walked from the Jordan at the baptism site, which was about 85 miles, to Cana. I mean, to, uh, to um, excuse me, to Bethsaida. Then they go from Bethsaida um, to Pernium, and then back. Anyway, it ends up being 85 miles and then 23 miles and then 20 miles between these places. So um, this is a, they've done a lot of walking in these six days. A Jewish wedding, which is what he's visited. Um, again, we'll talk much, way more in detail at about two-thirds of the way through the book of John. Um, but a, a Jewish wedding is really about the transfer of responsibility of a woman. Um, a Jewish wedding is about the, the father is responsible, is covering this woman, is responsible for this woman, and now she's being moved into the responsibility and the care of this young man. That's really mainly what a Jewish wedding is about. Over time, the traditions have been added and added and added and added. Um, that's what traditions do, is they typically take ground if, uh, if you don't question them every once in a while. And so that's, that's what you're talking about in regards to this. That's the, we see now a Jewish wedding has all types of different steps. Back then, probably not very many. But so when you transferred, when the bride was transferred to the groom as being under his care, um, and again, we'll talk more about this in John 14, but she then, um, she then the whole process is they, they decide to do this. Then he goes to prepare a home. Um, again, if you've been to Israel, they, they have these little these insulas, these um, little mini family communities. And he, and he would go back and build a home in addition to this little mini community. And then when he was done, and depending on his wealth and all that kind of stuff is how much of a home he would build, then he would go back and get her. But first he would send the best man. The best man would go and warn them, he's done, he's coming. And so then he would show up sometime in the next 24 to 48 hours, um, which would be quite a surprise if you've got to wait. You don't know if it's going to be two hours or, or 30 hours. And eventually he's going to show up. And he, when he does, you've got to have your entourage ready, bride, and then your family and your whole entourage, you follow them back to the groom's father's house, and you, you celebrate this, you have a little ceremony, and then you have a party that can last days. That's what's going on apparently in Cana, is that he's been invited to this party, he's been invited to the wedding itself. And what's happened is, they've, the, the, there's a few weird things in this story. One is, we don't meet the father of the groom. Um, the father of the groom should be the one hosting this party. Um, we meet the groom, but we don't meet the father of the groom. That's strange. That may be an indication that the father of the groom is dead. Um, that the groom himself is having to throw this party, which is why he has low quality and not enough wine. Um, that's a problem. Um, that's, that's part of it. Um, we also don't see Joseph. Joseph does not show up. From the time Jesus is 12, Joseph goes unmentioned to the rest of the Gospels. Um, the tradition is that Joseph, sometime between Jesus was age 12 and when he was 30, Joseph died, which is very likely. Um, uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, Joseph was very old when he married 
Mary. Um, there's no scriptural reason to believe that, but, um, but that he was already older. Regardless, he's probably dead, which is what's going to happen is we're going to see a Jewish woman have a problem. When a Jewish woman has a problem, that means at least one Jewish man has a problem. Okay? That's the definition. Is that, and she's going to transfer this problem to a Jewish man as quickly as possible. Is what you see happen. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Remember how we talked about how so many of these passages, especially in John, feel so real? And just, I mean, you go, yep, that's how those type of people talk to each other. This is a mother and a son having a conversation, and neither one is listening to the other one, right? <laughs> especially the mother is not listening to the son, um, a firstborn son. So this is, she has this problem. The assumption is, again, like I said, Joseph is dead, so who she goes to is her firstborn son. It's natural. Why Mary is involved in the wedding at this level, we have no idea, no clue. But what we have is she, real, she somehow finds out this couple is out of wine. That probably is going to be, uh, have a social consequence for them. As in, they, this, this will be their reputation from now on. Oh, you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah, they're the ones who ran out of wine at their, at their wedding party. Like, that's going to be what they're known as forever. And so Mary's trying to help this young couple avoid the humiliation of that, probably. Again, you're reading into it, but that's likely. So, we don't know what Mary is looking for here. What she says is, there's a problem. They go, she goes to her eldest son, which is the appropriate person for her to go to, and declare, there's a problem, they have no wine. And Jesus says, which is none of my business. That has nothing to do with me. I'm a guest at the wedding. How is it possibly my problem that they have no wine? That's not my problem. And on top of that, it's not my time. Now, my time for what? This is an odd little statement. We'll get back to it, but it's a, it's, it's a tough one. But what you got to love is, is Mary's response is to ignore Jesus. In fact, I think it should say that. His mother, said to, his mother, comma, ignoring Jesus, comma, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, you got to love that, that, Jesus, that Mary's going to say that. This is a, listen, do what he says. And then she, I, I always picture her then going back to the party. And now Jesus is kind of standing there awkwardly with two or three servants going, and they're going, so what do we do, right? I'd say that's how I see this every time. So now, this whole statement about it's not yet my time. My hour has not yet come. For what? Is it to reveal himself as a miracle worker? Is it to reveal himself as someone who steps in and takes care of problems or steps in and saves people? Is it uh, to reveal himself as the Messiah or as God on earth? Is it just more general, just to draw attention to himself? It's not yet time for him to start drawing attention to himself? We don't know for sure. Now, we're going to run into this phrase, some version of, it's not my time, or it's my hour has not yet come, multiple times in the book of John. We're going to see this over and over again, this idea. We see it through all the Gospels. So Jesus is on a timeline, and it feels like Jesus isn't even sure when his time is coming. He just knows when it isn't his time. The Holy Spirit has yet to reveal to him. When we get to John 7, we're going to camp on this a little bit. But that, that Jesus is going through life, living life as a rabbi, as the, he, living life, experiencing life as a human, though he is the Son of God. He is God himself, but his experience is that of a human. And humans don't always know what's coming, 
even really spiritual ones, even ones well-connected with God, don't, experience, don't always know what's coming. But we can wait upon the Lord and let, the God, let God lead us. Now, it seems to be what Jesus is doing. Again, in John 7, we're going to camp on this. But, but Jesus is saying, it's not my time. The Holy Spirit has yet to reveal to me that it's time. It could be as easy as Jesus then finds a solution to not drawing attention to himself. So notice, Jesus is going to perform a miracle, but not many people are going to know about it. So at this moment, Jesus could have walked out into the, into the main room where everyone is and says, okay, everybody look at your wine glass. Okay, finish those off. Everybody finish your wine glass. Okay, good. Now look at your wine glass. Is it empty? It's empty. Ready? Now all your wine glasses are full. I'm going to do that again in an hour. So you've got, like, he could have drawn tons of attention to himself to solve this problem. He could have started the miracle, some kind of new miracle network or something right here, and it would, have, it would have hugely impacted the entire community. But that wasn't, it's not his time for that. In John 7, the debate he's going to have with his brothers is about the fact that for his brothers, any time is a good time. But for him, there's only specific times. And this specific time, whatever it is, has not yet happened. And Mary doesn't seem to be concerned about this. She leaves it in his lap. Okay, well, I'm leaving and there's no wine, y'all do whatever he says. And so what Jesus does is after, I assume after an awkward few seconds, let me, actually, let me show you a couple of these. There is some significant time ones. I do want to share these verses. In Mark 14, 41, this is one of them. This is after he's prayed multiple times in the garden. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Maybe starting this path is what Jesus isn't prepared to start in John chapter 2. And John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So here Jesus is going to know in John 13 that his hour has come to leave the world. Um, regardless, it is not Jesus' time to do something, and I don't, I don't believe that Jesus changed some cosmic plan for Mary here. I think whatever it is, he still manages to avoid, even though he performs a miracle and creates a sign here. And by the way, the term woman is universally agreed upon to be a term of endearment here. Jesus is not talking down to his mom. He's not being rude to his mother, anything like that. This is a term of endearment. Um, all right, so verse... Six. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Um, so if you picture, I love, I love that a lot of times you go somewhere in Israel or other places, and they'll have wine jars, and they're, they're, they're shaped, there's these beautiful, like, shaped wine jars. And as a, as a boy from East Texas, I go, maybe five gallons. So here's what the jars looked like for purification. Again, when you heard jar, you pictured ceramic, or if you heard barrel, you pictured wood, this is Israel. It's stone. Um, so giant stone. See the people standing by it? Those these huge stone, um, kind of big stone barrels. And this, this family had six of them in their home. Does that give you a hint as to how much tradition and rules had been added to the purification rites? That a family had to have six giant barrels of water for purification. This, is, this had gotten out of hand. Even the, so a lot of the purification rites that we read about in the Bible are very specific for very specific times. 
That was not true in the time of Jesus. The rabbis and Pharisees had added so many purification rules and rites and regulations that it was, it was outrageous. Um, in fact, the one thing that everybody thinks they know about Jews from the first century is that Jews were supposed to God. The Bible had told the Jews they were supposed to wash their hands before they ate. That is not in the Bible. That's a rabbinical teaching later. Um, it would have made more sense if Jesus or, or, if, or if the Bible had taught it. That even that was something added in. That's not scriptural. This is 120 to 100 gallons of water. And Jesus is about to do something impressive with this. So he tells them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Notice, as these purification rules have become so impressive, that Jesus is going to take from ritual purification... And he's going to turn it into a community celebration. This is the repentance that the American church has been going through for the last decade or two, I think. The churches that aren't doing this are dying. And the churches that are overdoing this are dying. But we have gone from saying, listen, what we're really about is ritual purification. Behavioral modification, that's what the church is about. And instead to say, no, no, what we're about is a community celebrating a God who loves us and calls us to holy living. And we've seen churches catch on to this and understand this and begin to change the way they teach, the way they live. And all of a sudden, they start filling up with children and filling up with families when it's not a ritual purification activity that you do on Sunday morning, but instead a community celebration, an opportunity to come together and worship who God is to enjoy the good things he's given us. Now the problem is, then some move out of that and they go like, no, no, we don't care about purity at all. We're going to decide that scripture teaches whatever we think and we're going to take scripture and say, it's now, we're not going to maximize the role of scripture in our church over tradition, over purification, over ritual. We're going to minimize it for the sake of our culture. And guess what? Those churches are dying. Um, you, you, all you have to do is look up and begin to read about seminaries and churches in the mainline churches that are having to combine churches and combine seminaries because the populations are getting so small. And they're the ones who are no longer teaching anything as sin in Scripture. Turns out, holy living is not in opposition to community celebration of worship. Both are healthy. But it's not an issue of ritual purification. Following religious rites won't make you pure. Not drinking alcohol won't make you pure. Neither, neither will drinking alcohol, by the way. Neither one will make you pure. Um, I, as, as a young man, I taught my very first sermon was entitled Brick Christians. Um, what I had noticed, what it felt like a lot of times in church, was that there was only one positive instruction for church, and that was go to church, right? That was the only positive instruction. Everything else was negative. Do this, go to church. Everything else, don't do. Don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. You, you will be proud. Our leadership board works hard to make sure we have almost no signs anywhere on our property that says no or don't or none or stop or any of that kind of stuff. Because that's, that's already a bad enough reputation of the Christian church. Um, when I got here, I got permission to tear down essentially all of them that were on the property. Um, that's, that's just, a, it's a natural inclination. It's a ritual thing. We got to keep you from breaking stuff, right? No, we don't. Um, here's what I want you to hear. So Brick Christians was this. Since that's the case, since it's all about one thing is be at church and everything else is don't do things, then it struck me that a brick in the church was the perfect Christian. Because it's always a church. 
and it doesn't drink, and it doesn't smoke, and it doesn't gamble, and it doesn't cuss, and it doesn't do any of the other things we're not supposed to do. It's the perfect Christian. It's always here, and it doesn't do any bad stuff. Um, I, I've not been cured of my sarcasm yet, but that was my very first sermon. So Jesus tells them, fill it. <clears throat> so they filled them. Draw it and take it to the master of the feast. So they did. The master of the feast, by the way, would have been probably the head butler. He was the one in charge of the wedding feast. And so that's what he's got going on. They bring it to him. These servants do. And when the master of the feast, verse 9, tasted the water that had now become wine, he did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who draw in the water knew, see, they're, they're eyewitnesses. John wants you to be sure that you understand. There were eyewitnesses to this miracle. So you can hunt them down if you need to to ask about it. Um, even though most people didn't know where it was from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Okay, so this is kind of funny. The, the, the head butler is now going to give a little lesson in event coordination to the bridegroom. <clears throat> he sits down with him. So you can imagine they take a cup to the head butler before he's going to serve it to everybody. He's got to make sure it's okay. It's not turned bad. He takes a sip of the wine and goes, wow. Now this is a wine connoisseur. This is what he does for a living. He takes a sip and goes, wow, that's, that's amazing. So he sets the glass down. He goes over to the bridegroom. He's like, hey, uh, um, son, let me, let, me, let me help you out with something. When you throw a party, you serve the good stuff first, and you keep the nasty stuff till later when people are not so discerning about what they're drinking. Okay? That's how you do this. Now, notice the, notice the implied insult, by the way. What, what type of quality wine had apparently this young groom been serving at his wedding up until now? What kind of wine had they, quote, run out of, Right? You serve the poor stuff last, not first, implying you've been serving poor stuff up until now, right? No, you serve the good. This, now, is this in our Bible just to give us, us some tips in regards to hosting parties? Is that why it's here? No. Um, I mean, sure. But, but the, the, the value here <clears throat> is to say this. The wine that Jesus created was special. This is another one of the examples of God's thumbprint being left on a miracle. As if there weren't, as if it wasn't clear enough, he has just transmogrified something from something to something else. It was water, now it's wine. There's a process for that. It rains, the, the, the soil gets wet, the, the roots take it up, it goes into the vine, it goes into the grape, the grape gets picked and squished, and then fermented, and then you have wine. But Jesus didn't have that kind of time. <clears throat> he just makes it happen. This is a true, straight miracle. I mean, this is, this is a miracle at the, at the highest level, to transfer something to a different thing. That's an elemental breakdown. Yeah? Can I just add, that's also how you know it's not grape juice. <laughs> Yo, yes. So we're going we're to, it's not grape juice because the, the, bar, the, the butler knew what it was? Because they did the whole cheap stuff first. Yes. Okay, so it's clearly not grape juice. So as you just pointed out, if it was, you wouldn't have a butler saying, this is good stuff. You would have a butler saying, this has no kick, right? The butler would say like, Ugh. no, no, this is, this is wine and high quality wine. So here you, have, here you have Jesus coming back. They take it out there. It gets served. And what he wants you to know is, this is, this is an amazing miracle. This is showing off. It's one thing to turn water into wine. That's impossible. But to make it into good wine is just showing off. This is the three Hebrew children who didn't smell like smoke when everyone else did at the fire of Nebuchadnezzar. 
This is the fact that, that, that Moses and his people walked on dry ground. Did you say, <clears throat> well, there's all kinds of <clears throat> natural ways that, that water can pile up as people can walk. As John Redford pointed out, yeah, but the timing is impressive. That it opens up just in time for the Jewish people to escape and then closes up just in time to kill the, the, the chasing army. But also they walk on dry ground. That's not possible. That's a fingerprint. It's not just that a giant is killed. It's that it's killed by a little boy with one rock. You look at miracle after miracle after miracle, and what you see is God, it's not just that Gideon kills the Midianites, it's that he does it with 301 people. That's, this, his fingerprints are all over this. Um, I, I'll share with you, one of the miracles I've experienced in my life is that, is that I had a client who I'd been meeting with for a few years, and she came to me one day and said, um, hey, God woke me up in the middle of the night, all night, to pray for your baby. And I was like, well, that's, I mean, that's super sweet. Thank you so much. She knew we'd had two miscarriages at that point. I said, I'm, I'm really touched. Thank you for praying for him or her or whatever. But, I mean, we're not pregnant or anything. At least that's what I thought. It turns out we were pregnant. And that God had woken this woman up to pray, and she was a prayer warrior, to pray all night for the baby that we didn't even know existed yet. That's Mark. And so at about the time that we had lost our other babies, this woman was up all night praying for a baby that we didn't even know existed to pray for. That's a miracle, and it is a thumbprint this is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Galilee, Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Yet another testimony, yet another witness to who Jesus is. We have John the Baptist, we have Andrew, we have John, we have Nathaniel, we have Jesus' own words, and now we have his miracles. <clears throat> this witness is called a sign. <clears throat> it is that literally here means evidence, proof that Jesus is special, that there's something miraculous going on here, that this is not possible. The word here is doxa, his glory. It can mean reputation or opinions of others. It can be partial. This is this began to his reputation began to grow and spread. But it's even more than that. It means majesty, excellence, exalted state. In other words, Jesus began the process of showing who he really was. Which remember, the disciples have got to learn this. Just last chapter, they thought he was the son of Joseph. Jesus is now beginning to show them who he really is. And of course, it says so they believed. By the way, we're going to. Get that multiple times in John. Um, they believed. Okay, now they, now they believe. Okay, well, now they really believe. It's not until the very end of the book in chapter 20 is are they actually going to believe and really get who's going on here. Here's, here's the thought I want to leave you with, going back to this. I read a, a sermon by a Lutheran pastor this week on this passage that was really good. He emphasized, and we could have spent, I mean, this could be nine sermons. We, he, he emphasized the role of the servants who fill the wine jars or fill the, the water jars. That, that this is such an intriguing little thing that, that this guy pointed out that Jesus just tells them, he gives them two instructions, fill the water jars. So do they do it? Well, yeah, and to the brim. I mean, they go all the way. And then Jesus says, now dip some out and take it to the master, the head butler. So they do. I mean, would they think he was crazy? They're about to take water from a purification jar to the head butler for his approval? Had it, had it changed its look? I don't know. Did it look red? Had it looked like? I don't know. But at some point during that process, it became wine. This was the teaching that this guy pointed out. The phrase of Mary saying, do whatever he says. This is a great teaching for us. Do whatever he says. But why would I do that? I didn't ask you to ask why. I gave you an instruction. 
fill up the water jars. Now take it to the head butler. Do what he tells you to do. I, my guess is most of us in this room have one or two things in our life that we know right now Jesus would give us an, an instruction. Do this or stop doing this. And we need to do what he tells us to do. That needs to be our mindset. It is the vision of our church that we would do what he would tell us to do. It's why our leadership board prays and sings the song, Be Thou My Vision, that we would be reminded we don't want to do what we want to do. We want to do what he wants us to do. So I don't know what that is for you. As we wrap up this chapter, to be thinking about, when you look back at, maybe it has to do with alcohol. Maybe it has to do with your marriage. Maybe there's something there that you've already connected to. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your role. Maybe it is your role in the church. Maybe it's your relationship to whatever. Maybe it's the way your heart is, is hardened about something that you would say, you know what, I, I need to do what Jesus would have me do. What does he want me to do? So I'm going to pray that over us. Father, I... I I thank you for the power of every one of these passages and, and how fun and exciting they are to engage in and have a fuller understanding of. And, and Lord, I thank you for the power of your scripture and your scripture alone um, to be a trustworthy source of truth. Father, I thank you that your son teaches us through scripture and your spirit enlightens it for us just as it inspired it, just as he inspired it so long ago. Father, I pray that what it is that we know to do, we would do it. What we know that your son is telling us to do. Lord, let our church constantly be in the job of repenting from what we want to do. and Instead, we need to do what he says to do. Help us as individuals to have that same role. Lord, we have no rights. We have no entitlements. We are servants, just like these were servants. And whatever Jesus tells us to do, Lord, I pray you would give us the courage to hear it and the courage to do it. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.